Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Let's join our hearts together in prayer as we come to the preaching of God's word. Our Father, we do thank you. We thank you again that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you that you have given us your word as our all-sufficient foundation for knowing you, our ultimate authority of knowing you and knowing what you want us to know about you, your salvation, and how to live our lives. We pray that in this sermon you would help us to better understand this wonderful, glorious doctrine of unconditional election. We pray you would help us in this time. Help me to preach in, in a way that pleases you and is edifying to the people here. And may you be pleased to save sinners and to edify your saints. We thank you for this time. And may your people listen with hearts receptive to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we start at last Sabbath day on a, with a series on what has been called the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of of grace. We the sermon last week I preached on the doctrine of total depravity that in our natural condition because of the fall we are unable and unwilling to come to God for salvation. That is what we are. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. That's who we are before we are saved by Christ, we are unable and unwilling to seek God and his salvation. That's our condition as natural men and women without salvation in Christ. And since that's true of us, the only way we're ever going to be saved is not by a work of men, but by a work of God. If it's really true, and it is, that we are by nature dead, rebelling against God, running from God, not seeking God, not fearing God, but actually haters of God, the only way any man, woman, boy, or girl would ever be saved is if God stepped in and did something for us. Something that we could never do for ourselves. And so if someone really, and I said this last sermon, but if someone real or something like it, if someone really understands the doctrine of total depravity, if they really understand what it means and confess it rightly and truly, they must confess all the other points of the doctrines of grace because if we are really dead and hostile to God, we must be completely dependent on God's grace and on ourselves. And that's why the scripture so, says, so it depends not on him that wills, nor him that, him that runs, but on God who shows mercy. It doesn't depend on us, but on God who shows mercy. And we will see that 
this morning, God helping me in the doctrine of what has been called unconditional election. Unconditional election. So the main point of this sermon, and just like last week, it's not going to be a tight exposition of Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. It's more of a survey of the Bible and this doctrine theologically and biblically. But of course, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 is a key text. But the main point of this sermon is what is unconditional election? It's importance and practical lessons from this doctrine. So what is unconditional election? It's importance and practical lessons from this doctrine. So my first point is, what is unconditional election? What is unconditional election? So I want to define what it is. What do we mean when we say unconditional election? My second point is the importance of unconditional election. The importance of unconditional election. Why is it important? And my third point, practical lessons. Practical lessons from the doctrine of unconditional election. So my first point, again, what is unconditional election? As we see in this text that was read, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, we see the reality that all spiritual blessings are from God the Father, the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, and they are given to us in Christ. And so every spiritual blessing we have is a blessing from the Father, through the Son, and we see in this very chapter as well, by the work of the Holy Spirit. So our salvation is Trinitarian. Every blessing we have is from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. And then we see that the reason why we have these blessings in time is because we were chosen in Christ before time. That's important. The reason why we have blessings of salvation in time is because we were chosen for salvation before time began. Verse 4 of this chapter, Ephesians 1, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And so we see that the reasons why we have every spiritual blessing as believers is because before time began, before the foundation of the world, God chose us, his people, in Christ, so that we would be holy and without blame before him in love. He, verse 5, he predestined us, which means he purposed it beforehand, that we would be adopted as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. And now the question is, why did God do this? Why did God give us spiritual blessings? Why did God choose us in Christ? Why did God predestine us to be adopted as his sons by Jesus Christ to himself? That's the question that can come up. And some people will answer it because he looked down the tunnel of time and he saw that we would believe and we would have good works and we would persevere. And that's the reason why he chose us. But Paul, by the Holy Spirit, gives a very different reason. The reason he gives is verse 5, according to the good pleasure of his will. The reason God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world is because it was according to his good pleasure. It pleased him to do it, not because of anything in us. It had everything to do because of him and his purpose. It was his good pleasure to choose us before the foundation of the world. Or in verse 6, it was to the praise of the glory of his grace. 
So why did God choose us in Christ before time began? Because it was according to his good pleasure and because it was to glorify his grace. It was to the praise of the glory of his grace. That was the reason why he chose us. Not because of anything in you or anything in me or anything we could do or would do, but because of his good pleasure. So that's somewhat of an exposition. Well, then lastly, we see in verse 6, we see the reality that he made us accepted in the beloved. We are given grace. We are made accepted because we're in the beloved, namely in Christ. And so all the blessings, again, are in Christ, in the beloved. So that's somewhat of an exposition, a very brief exposition of those verses, 3 through 6, at least really primarily emphasizing the point of unconditional election. But now the question again, what is election? What is unconditional election? And why would we put in the phrase unconditional before election? That's an important word before. That's not just a word used with no meaning. We say unconditional election because it had nothing to do with you or with me. It was unconditional. Not because we met conditions, not because we did anything, not because we were holier or smarter or wiser. It was completely based on God and not on us. There was no condition for why God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. It was unconditional. Nothing in us was the basis for why God chose us. It was all in him. That's why we say it's unconditional. And so when we say election, we mean that God looked at a fallen race of humanity before the fall happened, but In God's mind, he chose a fallen race or out of a fallen race, people to be his own, people to be his own, people that he would choose to be his saved elect people. And so all of us, none of us were deserving of salvation. None of us were deserving to be inheritors of everlasting life. And God, out of free mercy and grace, chose a multitude out of the fallen race to be special objects of his saving grace. He chose us in Christ, not because of us, but because of his good pleasure and his will before the foundation of the world. Now back to the cans of Dort. This is what the cans of Dort say about election. And just to remind you again, the cans of Dort, where we're in church history, we get a very clear summary of what we know as the doctrines of grace. And the cans of Dort say this, quote, Election is the unchangeable purpose of God, whereby before the foundation of the world, he has out of his mere grace, according to the sovereign good pleasure of his own will, chosen from the whole human race, which had fallen through their own fault from their primitive state of uprightness into sin and destruction, a certain number of persons to redemption in Christ, who he from eternity appointed the mediator and head of the elect and the foundation of salvation. This elect number, though by nature neither better nor more deserving than others, but with them involved in one common misery, God has decreed to give to Christ to be saved by him and effectuated call and draw them to his communion by his word and spirit to bestow upon them true faith justification and sanctification and having powerfully preserved them in the fellowship of his son, finally to glorify them for the demonstration of his mercy and for the praise of the riches of his glorious grace, as is written, 
And then they quote this text that was read, or some of it at least, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he bestowed grace upon us in the beloved. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. And elsewhere, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Romans 8.30, end quote. And so they, the one, the, where I got this quote, they, I think they use, um, they look like New King James, but they, trans, they, they did it a little bit different. But it seems like those are the versions that, the version that they were using. But what we see here is that election is the unchangeable pur- purpose of God, where out of a fallen race, God chooses sinners to be his own. He elects them. He predestines them. He chooses for them to be his special people. This is what the doctrine of election is. And this might get us in the weeds a little bit, but I think it's okay. Some of you might know there's, there's been a discussion in church history between what's called superlapsarianism versus infralapsarianism, which has to do with how God chooses sinners. We see the cans of door. I think they very clearly uh, show an infralapsarian view, which means, I know those are big words, but infralapsarian, well, I'll define superlapsarian first. Superlapsarianism is the view that God chose people before the reality of the fall. Not in time, because all this is happening before time began, but choosing them, not taking the fall into account. The other view, infralapsarian, which I think is the view expressed by the cans of Dort, is that God chose us in light of the fall. Not as upright people, but as sinful and sinners. God chose a, a race of people that were fallen. Of course, again, in his mind, it hadn't happened yet. But a fallen race who was deserving of destruction, was deserving of wrath. If you want to know, I hold the infralapsarian view. I hold that God chose in light of the fall. Not it actually happening, but the reality that he knew was going to happen, ordained it, and then chose that fallen people, fallen people to be his own. And so we see that election is God choosing sinners before time began to be special objects of his saving grace. Or as our own confession puts it in chapter 3, paragraph 3 on God's decrees from the 1689 confession, it says, quote, By the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined or predestinated, it looks like, or predestined, or foreordained, at least this version, or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace. Others being left to act in their sin, to their just condemnation, to the praise of his glorious justice, end quote. Or they also say in the same chapter, paragraph five, quote, those of mankind that are predestined to life, God before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his mere free grace and love without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause moving him thereunto, end quote. And so what they're saying in, especially the second one, that predestination or unconditional election 
is God, out of his secret counsel and good pleasure, chose us in Christ out of his mere free grace and love, not because of anything in us, not because of anything done by us or would be done by us. He chose us because of his good pleasure, not because of what we would do or ever could do. Again, going back to total depravity. Since total depravity is true, there's nothing that we could do positively. If we are dead, the only way that we're ever going to be saved is if God chooses us first. Because if it was based on us, we would never choose God. We would never come to God. We would never seek his grace. So the only way any dead sinner is ever going to come to God is if God first chooses them. And God, before time began, chose an elect people to be his own special possession. And so this is what the doctrine of election is. But it's important to know, I want to say this as well. And and some of this can be very intellectual and heady. We're going to get to practical lessons. But if you don't know what the doctrine means, you can't practically apply it. So we have to spend time really seeking, I'm trying to unpack what it means so that when we get to practical lessons, we have something to base it on because we have a good, solid foundation for what this doctrine means. But some people will say things like, God predestined the elect and predestinated the, or predestined the reprobate. And sometimes how people hear that is that God chose these people to be evil and God chose these people to be saved. But our confession is purposeful to not use that language. If all men, when God chose them, he saw them as sinners in a fallen condition, God simply passed over and left them to their own condition. It's not that he made them evil. It's not that he put fresh evil in them, changed their heart, made them evil, and therefore condemned them for what he did in them. God simply passed over these people who, of their own desires, rebelled against God and sought their own way. And so it's not God purposely or or putting evil in someone and then condemning them. It's God simply passing over those who deserve condemnation. Our confession, again, puts it like this. I'll say it again. Others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation to the praise of his glorious justice. That's how our confession summarizes what God does. Sometimes you'll hear people when they're giving an argument, you'll say, does God, God predestinates people to hell. God predestines people as if God purposes and kind of makes them do it or forces them to it or, or puts evil in them to do it. No, we don't believe that. We simply believe that God passes over them. Yes, he's sovereign over it. Yes, he's in control of it. But he is the one who passes over them and leaves them to what they desire in their natural heart. The natural man doesn't want God and therefore left to themselves, they want sin and they do sin. And that's what they desire. And so we see election, unconditional election, is God choosing us in Christ before time began, not because of anything in us, but because of his own good pleasure and will. Now, that's theologically how it's understood. Let's look at scripture passages that show us these doctrines. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. As we look in the scriptures about what it means for the reality of election. Deuteronomy 7 and verses 7 and 8. This is about God's election of Israel, but we still see a principle here of God being 
the sovereign initiator. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. It says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. Verse 8. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So we see the Lord set his love upon Israel, not because of anything they've done, but because the Lord loved them. The reason why he chose them as his nation is because of his love towards them, not because of anything they did. He didn't choose Egypt. He didn't choose other nations, but he uniquely chose Israel to be a special people. And so we see the principle there of God's electing purposes to Israel because of his own sovereign will. Then if you turn to Psalm 33, Psalm 33. Psalm 33, and if you look at 10 and 11. Psalm 33, 10 and 11. Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11. It says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. This is more, these are more verses about God's sovereignty, but we see here that the counsel of the nations, the Lord brings to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. Man has plans, but if they, they're not over or above God's plans. What plan stands is the counsel of the Lord and the plans of his heart to all generations. Then if you look at Isaiah 46, Isaiah 46. As we again think about God's sovereignty over all things, but including the salvation of his people. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. So we see that not only does God know the end from the beginning, which is true, He declares it, He decrees the end from the beginning and everything in between, which would include our salvation. God declared it, God decreed our salvation before time began. He declares the end from the beginning and his counsel shall stand and he will do all his pleasure. Some more language to Ephesians 1, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, if you look at Malachi chapter 1, Malachi chapter 1, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 1, right before the gospel of Matthew, Malachi chapter 1, and if you look at verses 2 and 3, Malachi 1 verses 2 and 3. Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? 
says the Lord. Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. So we see here that God uniquely set his love upon Jacob and not Israel. This becomes a very important verse as it relates to salvation and election in the New Testament. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. God rejected Esau, he passed over Esau and set his saving love upon Jacob. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. If you turn to Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 11, as we continue to think about verses that teach this doctrine. Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. Matthew 11, 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. So we see God's sovereignty over who has revealed the message. It's hidden from some. They're passed over. And it's revealed to others. And why did the Father do it? Because it seemed good in his sight. Why did God choose some and pass over others? Because it seemed good in his sight. And so we see that reality of his revelation of some of his salvation was because of his own good pleasure. John chapter 6, if you turn there, John chapter 6 and verse 36, 37, I mean, John 6, 37. John 6 and verse 37. John 6, 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the ones who come to me, I will by no means cast out. Or verse 39 of the same chapter. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. We see Jesus talking about those that were given to him by the Father. He talks about all that the Father has given me or gives me. Or again in verse 39, all that he has given me. Well, when were people given to Christ? When, when did the Father give people to Christ? Well, the Bible teaches us before time began, before the foundation of the world. There were elect people given to Christ by the Father that he would redeem and save by his death and resurrection. And so all that the Father gave him, he would lose nothing because he would save those who were given to him. Now, if you look at Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13 and verse 48. Acts 13 and verse 48. Acts 13 and verse 48. It says here in this passage, Now when the Gentiles heard this, the reality that the Lord had sent them because of Christ to be a light to the Gentiles, that's the context. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And the end of the verse is very important. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. It's not that they believed and therefore were appointed. That would be an opposite way of looking at it. It's they were appointed and that's why they believed. 
They were appointed by God when? Well, God is outside of time. And so they were appointed before time began. These Gentiles who were going to believe, or these Gentiles who were going to be saved, they were appointed by the Father to be saved before time began. And because they were appointed, they believed. And everyone that was appointed by the Father will believe in time because of the grace of God. And so they were appointed to eternal life. They were ordained to eternal life. And that is why they believed. So this is a very key text. They were appointed and therefore they believed. When were they appointed? Before time began. They were appointed before time began. And these Gentiles who were hearing the word of the Lord, they believed. Not because of them, but because they were appointed to eternal life. Now if you look at Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. We can almost do this whole chapter, but I'm going to limit it a little bit. Romans 9, if you start at verse 6. Romans 9 and verse 6. The, the question that's in dispute here is Israel had rejected, many of them had rejected, even though the Christ came through them, and they were uniquely blessed with the oracles of God and these type of things, as verse 4 points out in verse 5. But the question comes up, why are many of them not believing that Jesus is the Messiah? That's, that's the question that's coming up that Paul, by the Spirit, has to answer. Because he says in verse 6, but it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. It's not like the word of God has failed. Why? For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. His answer to this question is not all those who are descended from Israel are truly spiritual Israel. Truly spiritual Israel. And then he uses the example at the end of this section of Jacob and Esau. Same mother, same father. One was chosen, the other wasn't. And he uses that as an example of God choosing one to be truly of his spiritual people and the other he passed over. And the answer in verse 11 is before they had done anything good or evil, before they'd done anything bad or good, before they'd done anything of that nature, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. And then it doesn't say not of works, but because of faith, which you would think it would say, but it says not because of works, but because of him who calls. So it's putting the emphasis not even on our faith. It's putting the emphasis on God's sovereign call to us. And then it quote, it says in verse 12, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as is written, verse 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I have hated. And so we see the reason why God chose Jacob and not Esau was according to the purpose of election. Not because of anything in Jacob or Esau, but because of God's sovereign purpose. But then if you look at verse 20, you look at verse 20, an argument comes up in light of this, well, there's two arguments that come up. Let me just say this. When you talk to people about the doctrine of election, two arguments normally come up. 
These are the two arguments, and they're always usually the exact same two, just worded differently. Let me tell you what the two main arguments are. They're almost always the same, different wording. First argument is this. That makes God unrighteous and unfair. That makes God unrighteous and unfair. If God chose one and pastor the other, not because of anything they've done, but because of his own sovereign purpose, that makes God unfair and unrighteous. That is a key objection people give. That makes God unrighteous and unfair. I love when people bring up that objection in this way, not for the objection's sake in itself, but because that's the exact line of argument that Paul, by the Holy Spirit, knows people are going to say. Because verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. And then the answer is, for he says, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. What's the argument? God doesn't owe people mercy. So if you want God to be fair, no one would get mercy. God is free to give mercy to whoever he wants. And to say him choosing one and passing over the other is unfair. You're saying that people deserve mercy, which is a contradiction in turn. If you deserve mercy, it's not mercy anymore. It's what's due to you. And so his argument is saying, if God owed you mercy, it wouldn't be mercy anymore. God can give mercy to whomever he wills. To whomever he wills. And then I quoted this verse earlier, but if you look at verse 16, so then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. So it's of God who shows mercy. So we cannot give the objection, which is a common objection to unconditional election. That makes God unfair. And Paul, by the Holy Spirit, says, no, it's not unfair because God doesn't owe anyone mercy. God doesn't owe a single person mercy. And that he shows mercy at all is his own prerogative. It's his own right to give mercy to whom he wills. So that's the first objection. Now this is the second objection. And it's almost always these two. Maybe there are other key ones, but these are usually the two key ones. Second, this is the second argument. So first argument, just to clarify or to make it clear, is that makes God unfair and unrighteous to do that. Second argument is this. How can God hold me accountable if it's based on his sovereignty? How can God hold me accountable? If it's based on God's sovereignty that some are chosen and some aren't, how can he hold me responsible? How can he say that I'm responsible for what I do? It was based on his sovereign decree. Verse 20. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Well, verse 19. Let me, let me, that's the objection. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find faults? For who has resisted his will? That's the argument. Well, how can anyone resist his will? How can he find fault in me? No one can resist God's will. But then the, the argument back. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endure with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, now the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So the argument is this. God's our maker. And therefore God can do what he wants with us and we can't answer back to him. We do also know that man is responsible for their sin because they choose to sin. They desire sin. That's what they want. But the argument here is God is free to do with his creatures what he desires. He's the potter. We're the clay. He's our maker. We're the ones who are made. 
And therefore, God showing mercy to some and wrath to others is doing no wrong, but is simply doing as he has the perfect right to do. God doesn't owe anyone mercy. He deserves, everyone deserves to be a vessel of wrath. But God to give some mercy and to be vessels of mercy is mere grace and mercy. And so we see that, that the argument against saying, well, how can God blame me is basically questioning God and saying God doesn't know how to do what, what is right for what he's made. And so these verses in the Old New Testament show us that God is the one who chooses us. And the reason why any of us believe in this room, the reason why you believe and I believe, this is the reason. We've been doing a lot. There's been a lot of content so far in the sermon. But to sum it all, the reason why you and me believe, the reason why I believe and you believe is this reason. Because we were were appointed to eternal life. That's why we believe. Because we were appointed to eternal life. You believe and I believe if we do because we are appointed before time began to eternal life. And that's why in time we believed. We were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Not because of us, but because of his grace and his love. And if it wasn't for that, my beloved brethren, you know what would be true? No one would go to heaven. No one would go to heaven. Not one person would go to heaven unless God chose us first. Because we would never choose God on our own. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Why do we receive the gospel? Not because of anything in us, but because of God's unconditional election. Because we were appointed to believe. Not believe so that we would be appointed. And so the only reason any of us believe in this room is because of God's unconditional election. We were appointed to eternal life and therefore we believe. But now my second point. The importance of unconditional election. First, why is unconditional election important? First, because it testifies to the fact that God, not man, is sovereign over salvation. He chooses us by his good pleasure. Why is it important? Because it screams out to us that it's not because of us, but because of God. It screams out to us that salvation is of the Lord. It screams out to us that it's not because of us. As they said to to the Lord, then it's impossible. And Jesus does say, he doesn't say, you know what? Actually, man can do it on their own. No, he doesn't. He says, with men, it is impossible. Salvation is impossible with men. I agree with you, Jesus is basically saying, yeah, if it was up to man, it would be impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That's why we're saved, because it is impossible for man. But all things are possible with God. And therefore, under understanding the unconditional election testifies to us that salvation is not of man, but of God. That's why it's important. That's a key reason why this doctrine is important, because we must confess that salvation is not of us, but of God. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So it's salvation is not because of us, but because of God. Second, Without the doctrine of unconditional election, we could think that we could take some credit for our salvation. But this doctrine shows us that him who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. If it wasn't, if unconditional election wasn't true, we could think that there was something in us. And this is a difficult question for people who think that their salvation is ultimately based on their own free will. This is the troubling question. 
You believe what your neighbor didn't. What made the difference? You believe, but your neighbor didn't. What made the difference? And most people, if they're thinking honestly, most, if they're true Christians, it's hard for them to say this, but if they're thinking consistently, they say, well, because I made the better decision. Because I chose the right thing and they reject it. And you know what that puts the ultimate basis of why made the difference? Them. They made the difference. They made the difference. That's what someone, if they're thinking consistently and connecting the dots, we equally had free will to choose. We were equally able to choose. I chose, he didn't. What made the difference? Me. I made the difference. Praise God that many people who hold to this type of theology are inconsistent. Praise God for that. That they will acknowledge it's of the Lord and by his grace. Praise God that people are inconsistent. That's a wonderful thing. But if they're thinking consistently, they can't say that. But what do we say if we believe in unconditional election? What made the difference between you and your family member who doesn't believe the gospel? Grace. Grace. God's grace. That makes all the difference. What makes the difference is God's grace. Not us. Not anything done by us or would be done by us. What made the difference between me and my lost loved one was God's grace. His unconditional election of me before the foundation of the world. And that's why the scriptures will say, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And so that's why it's important. It testifies that salvation is of God and not of man. And that it shows us that we can take no credit for our salvation. You're saved all because of grace. All because of grace. Now my third point. Practical lessons from the doctrine of unconditional election, which is similar, but unpacking it maybe a little bit more. First, I want to talk to unbelievers in the room. If you're an unbeliever in this room, please wake up or sit up straight or listen to me because now it's for you. If you're an unbeliever in this room, how does the doctrine of election apply to you? What should you think as it relates to the doctrine of election? First, the doctrine of unconditional election should not make you passive in seeking salvation. It should not make you passive in seeking salvation. Similar to total depravity, the call of the gospel is not know if you're elect and then come, but as a guilty sinner in need of forgiveness and redemption. You don't come as elect to Christ. You come as a hell-deserving sinner to the mercy of God in Christ. You don't come thinking, because I'm elect, therefore I can come. The only reason you come is because you know you're guilty and you need a savior. Election is not a hindrance to evangelism or coming to Christ. It actually is a motivation knowing that if you come to Christ, you'll have free forgiveness. And so for you as an unbeliever, you're not to take the doctrine of election and say, that means I can't come. That means I should just be passive. And and if I'm not elect, I'm not elect. And if I'm elect, I'm going to be saved anyways. That's not how you should receive the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election to you says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. It's been said, I think, rightly. Outside the door, it says, whosoever will, let him come. You walk through the door as a, as a believer, you see the other side chosen before the foundation of the world. But before you're a believer, all you need to worry about is the outside the door. That's all you have to worry about. Whosoever will, let him come. That's all you have to worry about. And you don't come not because you're elect or not elect in your mind or thinking those things. You don't come because you don't want to. But the gospel is freely offered. 
That if you come, you'll have everlasting life. And so we, we never want you to hear as an unbeliever that the doctrine of election is to make you passive or not seek salvation. The doctrine of election is a wonderful doctrine for us as Christians, but it's not a, a hindrance to coming to Christ. The only thing that hinders you from coming to Christ is you, not election. You're the hindrance, not election. Listen to the cans of Dort, how they put it. Quote, The wrath of God abides upon those who believe not this gospel, but such as receive it and embrace Jesus the Savior by a true and living faith are by him delivered from the wrath of God and from destruction and have the gift of eternal life conferred upon them, end quote. What a wonderful way to put it. It doesn't say, well, know know that you're elect. It says, if you receive it, embrace Jesus the Savior by a true and living faith. That's the call for unbelievers, to receive him by a true and living faith. They also say this, quote, the cause or guilt of this unbelief as well as all uh, as well as of all other sins is no way in God but in man himself whereas faith in Jesus Christ and salvation through him is the free gift of God as is written for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves is the gift of God Ephesians 2 8 likewise for to you has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him Philippians 1 29 end quote and so the cause of guilt of our unbelief, as well as all of our other sins, is not in God, but in you, if you're a sinner without Christ. That, the problem is in you. But the wonderful truth is, if you're here today as an unbeliever, you can be saved. You can seek the Lord while he may be found and find salvation in Christ. And so this doctrine of unconditional election should not make you passive but should actually make you desirous of salvation. And so do not use the doctrine of election as an unbeliever to be passive, but use it as a motivation to come to Christ for salvation. So again, and even, let me just apply this to believers as well. We should not go to sinners as we're preaching the gospel and say, if you feel that you're elect, you can come to Christ. That would be terrible way of talking to a sinner terrible if you feel that you're elect then you can come no we say to them come to christ as you are guilty and filthy and he will receive you and cleanse you we tell them as you are guilty and filthy because sometimes people think when we talk to them about the gospel they think i have to clean myself up i have to go to church a little bit i have to read more pray more do something and then maybe i can come to christ we never want people to think that way We want them to know they come as they are, guilty and filthy, to a merciful Savior who cleans them up. Because if they think they could clean themselves up, they don't know why they need Jesus. The whole point of coming to Jesus is they acknowledge, I can't clean myself up. I'm too bad to clean myself up. And my only answer is Jesus and his salvation. And so they come to Christ, not because they've cleaned themselves up, but because they need to be cleaned up and forgiven and cleansed by him and his precious blood. And so salvation, we offer it freely to all that they might receive the salvation in Jesus Christ. But now, more particularly towards believers, even though I was talking about believers and evangelism, now thinking about us as believers, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
This is how our confession in chapter 3, paragraph 7 puts it in the 1689. It says, quote, The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation or effectual calling be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. End quote. So how does this apply to us as believers? So we've seen the doctrine. We've seen its importance. Now, how does this apply to us as believers? Well, I'm going to go through what this paragraph says as how it applies. First, this doctrine of unconditional election or predestination should be handled with prudence and care. There are errors that people can make as it relates to this doctrine. So we must be careful to emphasize truths in such a way not to negate other truths. So this can happen in the problem of what's called hyper-Calvinism, where you so emphasize God's sovereignty that you exclude man's responsibility. That's not holding it with prudence and care. You say, since God is sovereign, true, it doesn't matter what man does. False. That's not holding it with prudence and care. We can easily hold this doctrine in an imbalanced way to emphasize one without the other. Or others who hold to more what can be called free will theology, they so emphasize man's responsibility that they neglect God's sovereignty. But to hold this doctrine as believers with prudence and care, we confess both. God is sovereign, God chooses, but we're responsible. We must hold it with prudence and care. We must hold it with balance so that we can affirm and proclaim this doctrine in a wise way. This is so important because we can emphasize one or the other. We can emphasize in a wrong way God's sovereignty where we completely negate that man is responsible. And so we must be faithful to apply both realities. And that's why even as people who believe in unconditional election, we can freely offer the gospel to sinners because we don't just believe in unconditional election. We also believe that God calls sinners through Christ by men, women, boys and girls sharing the gospel with others to true faith. And so we can call Sinners to repentance and faith. Second, we realize that this doctrine doesn't hinder assurance, but instead contributes to it. Why would this doctrine help our assurance? Well, I think one reason it can help us is because we realize we would have no genuine spiritual life from the heart unless God made us alive. So as we evaluate ourselves and we realize, I have spiritual life. I have genuine love to Christ, genuine love to the brethren, genuine love for his word. This would never happen if God had made me alive because I could have never done this. I could have never made myself love Christ and love his word and love the brethren in sincerity like I know I do. And so if you know you have those feelings and those desires of true love for Christ or true faith in Christ, which leads to love for him and love for his people and love for his word, that should greatly encourage you that I would never be able to work this up on my own. And therefore, as I look back in my life, who I was before Christ and who I am now in Christ, the only way this would happen is if God was sovereign because I could never do it. And since it's happened, it must mean that I'm a true child of God because this would never happen if it was based on me. So actually this doctrine helps our assurance because it shows us that based on us, we would never come. 
And if we have come in sincerity and truth, it's because God first loved us. And so it builds up our assurance and helps us to remember that we come by his grace and therefore it should bolster, it should help you in your assurance. Especially it should help people in assurance. I mean, it can help people who grew up in Christian homes, but it should especially help people with assurance who didn't. It can help both, of course. But for those who didn't, realizing, where would I be if God didn't rescue me? Why, why would I be living this way? I didn't grow up this way. I didn't live this way. Why am I like this? It's because of God's grace. That's what made the difference. Why am I like I grew up thinking these things. If it was up to me, I would be living a whole different life. But I'm, I'm living this way and walking this way because God showed me grace. And that should bolster your assurance. Third, this doctrine should produce praise, reverence, and admiration of God. As we think about this doctrine, how can we not praise God knowing that if it wasn't for him, we would never be saved? We would never be saved if it wasn't for him. The doctrine of election in the Bible, interestingly, is not a doctrine to debate over. It's a doctrine to praise God about. The irony of how it's become such a controversial thing is very ironic. Because the Bible brings it up not because it's trying to argue this, this debate topic. It's because it's trying to help us praise God for what he's done for us. It's a doctrine that we should praise God over. That even though there was nothing good in me, nothing good in you, nothing that could have brought us to salvation, God chose us out of his mere free grace and love. And if that doesn't make us praise God, I don't know what will. If realizing that God, by his mere free grace, chose you, and if that doesn't make you praise God, there won't be many things that will. That he set his love upon you before the foundation of the world to be the object of his special grace so that you, even though you are guilty and filthy in Adam, will be redeemed by God through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And where did it all begin, so to, begin, so to speak, before time began? In the decree of God choosing you out of a fallen human race to be his special people. So we should praise God. We should have reverence towards God. We should admire God, had admiration towards God as the God who ordained us before the foundation of the world to believe, to eternal life so that we would believe. Fourth, this doctrine should produce humility, knowing that the only reason we are saved is by the unmerited grace of God that he purposed to bestow on us before time began. It's an oxymoron for someone to hold to the doctrines of grace and not be gracious. It's a silly contradiction. Because we realize that what we have is because we received it from the Lord. And so therefore, we of all people, if we really understand the doctrine of unconditional election, it should make us humble knowing that not because of me, but because of God I'm saved. And so we should be before God as humble creatures, knowing that nothing in us but all because of his grace we're saved. So it should lead to humility before God and before others as we realize that not unto us, not unto us, but to your name be the glory. So holding the doctrines of grace and humility have to go together. And this should help us with those who have slightly different views with us. That we realize that even though we want them to come to these things, we know the only reason we've come to these things is because of grace. We came to these things because 
Yes, because the word, but because God has given us understanding and illumination by grace, which will make us humble. Yes, we can be passionate about these things. And yes, it's fine to debate over these things and have good discussions over them, but with humility, knowing what do you have that you have not received? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it, as the scriptures say? And let him who boasts, don't boast of your knowledge, boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. And so it should produce, produce humility in us. Fifth, this doctrine should not promote us being passive, but diligent in, believe, in believing the gospel and living a life that is consistent with that glorious gospel. The doctrine of election is actually for our holiness. If you, in Ephesians 1, it says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we would be holy and blameless or without blame before him in love. This doctrine is meant to have us believe the gospel and live an inconsistent life in light of the gospel. God chose you so that you would be holy. God chose you so that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Why did he foreknow us and predestinate? Predestine us. Why did he do that? To be conformed to the image of his son. That he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Why did God choose you? So that you might be holy and you might live a life consistent with his word. And a life that is consistent with godly holiness. And so this doctrine should not make us passive, but actually a motivation to live a godly life because God chose you so that you would be conformed to the image of his firstborn son, Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. Six, this doctrine should produce abundant consolation or comfort in those who sincerely obey the gospel, those who sincerely embrace Christ by faith, is a great comfort to know that we are chosen and redeemed by God. So as we think about unconditional election, what should it do for us? It should lead us to have abundant consolation, great comfort, knowing that not because of me, but because of God, I've been chosen, redeemed, and called to Jesus Christ. And so it should comfort us, knowing that our salvation is of God. And this will be the last of the doctrines of grace, but to put a little bit here, this also shows us the comfort that if God started this process before time began, it will never end. He who began it before time began will keep you all the way to the end. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. All the way to the day of Jesus Christ. And so you can never lose what God began. You know why? Because you you weren't the beginner of this process. You didn't begin the process. God began it before time began and then worked in you by his grace, by bringing you to Christ. And so because you are not the originator of it, you cannot throw it away. And as we sang this morning, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. So may God help us to understand this doctrine, that he, before time began, chose us, before the foundation of the world, he chose us in Christ to be his elect people, knowing that our salvation is not of man, but of God, and that we might have great comfort knowing that the one who began this work will complete it. May God help us to understand these truths for his honor and his glory and for our spiritual good. Amen.
Our Father, we pray that you would help us apply these truths and may you be glorified in them. In Jesus' name, amen.